You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. Hey there, everybody. This is Danny Anderson thanking you for listening to another episode of the Sectarian Review Podcast. As always, I am recording from Mount Aloysius College in Crescent, Pennsylvania. And today I'm talking to somebody probably on the exact opposite side of the globe from me. Uh, she is in uh, Africa, in um, uh Djibouti, Africa. Um, I got that right on the first try. And uh, we'll be talking to Rachel Pye Jones, who has a new book that's about to be released on April 6th. It's called Pillars, How Muslim Friends Led Me Closer to Jesus. And that comes to us from um, Plow Publishing. And I just want to thank Plow uh, for once again, giving me a really interesting author to talk to. Um, I, I subscribe. This is not, they've not asked me to uh, give them a plug, but I, I do it because I just love Plow. I subscribe to Plow Quarterly. And one thing that I always appreciate about the work that they put out there is that it's always challenging to me. It's it's never something that um, fits into sort of easy categories um, that I find kind of boring in our modern kind of political and theological discourses. And so, um, and this book is is no exception. So, uh, Rachel, uh, thank you so much for joining me. Thanks for having me, Danny. I'm really excited for our conversation. I really enjoyed reading the book. Um, this is a, uh, I wouldn't have somebody on if I didn't enjoy the book. <laughs> I guess everyone should know that. Um, and so it's, there's an implicit recommendation just by you being on today. Um, but I really do, uh, admire it on a number of levels. It's, um, like I said, like most of what Plow does for me is that this is a book that kind of resists, um, easy categories and answers and binaries. And, uh, and I think that there's a lot, um, to be taken, um, uh, to heart from pretty much anybody who listens to the show, I think is going to find something to appreciate about this book. Um, and so can you give me just a little bit um, to begin about your sort of background? Uh, this is a really interesting story you tell, and you have what I take to be a very unique life story here. So why don't you tell us about uh, your journey, as they say? Sure. So I am originally from Minneapolis, Minnesota, actually a suburb, and uh, spent my whole life in Minnesota. When my husband and I got married, we moved into a high-rise apartment complex downtown Minneapolis. It was very close to the university where we were students. And that apartment complex at the time in the late 90s was filled with Somali refugees, people fleeing the war in southern Somalia. And so immediately my neighbors became Somali Muslims. And I was raised in a Christian Baptist evangelical home. Um, I am a Christian and, and really loved that upbringing. But then I found myself in this apartment building surrounded by Muslims who I had never really encountered before. And um, my husband and I had a heart to go abroad. We knew we wanted to work internationally at some point. He was interested in teaching. And so through connections at that apartment building, Somalis told us, hey, you should come teach in Somalia. And we thought, uh, I don't think so. <laughs> <laughs> the only thing we knew about Somalia was the war and that it was dangerous and violent. But they told us about this northern region where it was peaceful and stable and had been for a long time. And there was at that time the only functioning university 
And so through some connections, my husband decided that, yeah, I think we should um, try this teaching at the university. Actually, he took a trip to talk to the other professors, see what the village was like. He came back and he said, no way, we can't do this. It's way too hard for us coming out of Minnesota um, into this rural Somali village. But, but then we both concluded, you know, I think the best place for us to be is a place that's too hard for us. Anything good that we can accomplish then would just be by grace, not by our own success and um, ability to do anything productive. Like we knew we were going to be really outsiders. Um, so in 2003, with our two-year-old twins, we moved to northern Somalia where he was a professor. And we really were outsiders. You know, everything was different from the clothes, the language, um, walking to the market every day to get food because I didn't have electricity, just everything overturned in my world, including that I was now surrounded by Muslims. So we lived in this village for about a year, a little bit less than a year. And there was some violence there. We were forced to flee, actually. We ended up moving across the border to Djibouti, which is where we live now. Djibouti, Djibouti, really fun to say that. <laughs> and um, he taught at the university here for about 10 years. And then now we started a school and that's what we do and I write. So that's kind of the, the overview of how we got to Djibouti. And we've been here now since 2004. Yeah, and the book opens um, in the introduction with the sort of um, uh, the moment at which you had to leave um, Somaliland for Djibouti um, at this sort of crisis of um, violence that's going on. And, and it's very kind of, um, it's cinematic, right? And, and, and you have this sort of um, uh, threat that kind of overhangs um, the move that you, you've, uh, you're undertaking there. Um, and, and I feel like there's a, it's tied to a theme in this book about conflict and seeing conflict from multiple angles. And so um, I'd like to talk kind of at the, the theological roots of that for you. Um, you. You talk about in the book quite a bit about assumptions uh, that you grew up with in your Christian evangelical home and and life and how those became both a form of baggage for you to kind of um, carry with you and get over, but also a form of giving you perspective on uh, your life as the person who's kind of seen through uh, these kinds of uh, prejudiced eyes, I suppose, in some cases when you're uh, abroad. Can you talk a little bit about your religious upbringing and how it kind of plays into the themes of this story? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I grew up in a really loving home, a wonderful church community um, where I felt like I knew where I belonged. I knew that I was loved. I knew that I was safe. Um, and it was a really you know, almost idyllic kind of way to grow up. And and I really was given this sense of richness and fullness that I'm thankful for. But at the same time, growing up in that environment was very bounded. You know, we knew who we were and we thought we knew who everybody else was, even to the point of my denomination or my specific church. Like we're the we're the insiders and everybody else is outside. And then taking that feeling really led to kind of give out of that richness and that fullness, we landed in a place where now we are most definitely on the outside. You know, it was pretty clear, especially in Somaliland, but even in Djibouti, you know, we're the minority in every way by, by skin color, by religion, by um, nationality, we're the minority. And so as an outsider, I started to think about, I, I am being seen as 
not what they are. Meaning, you know, as a Christian, when I was a kid, everybody else was a non-Christian. Everybody else was not what I was. And so my definition of them was through my own lens, that they are not me. And once I came here and I became the not person, you know, the not Muslim, the unbeliever. And I had friends who actually would call me an infidel. That was a, a word that they would use. Even kids call out this word when they would see me or they would refer to me as an infidel. And I felt like I'm not an infidel. I have a strong faith that means a lot to me. And so it was this moment of really wrestling with what it does to another person to call them a not something in reference to myself, if that makes sense, um, which is a form of, it could be construed as a form of violence by stripping them of their own sense of identity based on who they think they are. And so being the outsider, being the stranger kind of exposed me to that dynamic. And, um, and then I, I wanted to really see how do they understand themselves so that I'm not calling someone who's not a Christian a non-Christian, but a Muslim. I'm defining them by how they see themselves. And that's been really, um, it just affects how then you see somebody else by being willing to see them as they see themselves. And it's really interesting. You have a very profound honesty in this book that stands out to me. One uh, example that sort of comes to mind is you reflecting on uh, a note I can't remember all the details of it. You wrote a note to some uh, a Muslim friend of yours, and I believe this is still in Minnesota, urging her conversion, basically, right? Uh, mm -hmm. And I want to get to the kind of the fraught nature of conversion and, and um, missionary uh, identity here later on. But that that's sort of a moment where you sort of look back regretfully on some of the attitudes that you brought to interactions with, with the non, as you say. Yeah, she was most definitely a non, Yeah. right? She wasn't... I didn't see her as a Muslim. I saw her as a not Christian or a not me, yeah. um, which, you know, we don't share the same beliefs. It's true that she's not a Christian, but to define her as that really limits her yeah. in, in the fullness of who she is. So there was this woman, it was actually in Colorado. I was working at a, a YMCA as a housekeeper and she was my boss or my, my shift crew leader. And she had to leave quickly. She was the first Muslim that I ever had a relationship with. She had to leave the country quickly because someone in her family had been killed in a terrorist attack um, in Africa. And I never really thought about the fact that her Muslim relative was killed by Muslim terrorists. You know, what does that mean about all these things we think of, we understand about Islam and terror? Um, and so before she left that night, I wrote a, a quick evangelistic note, really limiting the gospel to something that Jesus never limited it to. Um, and even I use this imagery of, of a bridge, which I think is a fairly popular or used tool. And it has merits, but it's not the it's not the fullness of the goodness of God and forgiveness and redemption. And it really presents this idea that a person can cross over this bridge on their own. When what the gospel is in its fullness is Jesus coming incarnate to us and to bring us to God um, through redemption and reconciliation through the cross. So in this little scribbled note on notebook paper, I tried to pack it all in. And, and I just, um, I also missed in that moment, the opportunity to show her compassion. Um, I don't even remember. I don't remember, honestly, beyond writing that illustration. But did I ask her about her grief? Did I acknowledge her loss? Um, did I think about her as a real person? Or was she just this project that now I can check it off my list that I've, I've made this 
presentation in a way that Jesus never did himself. And so, so yeah, I do look back on that and think I could have loved her better. Um, I do think that there's, there is value and there's merit, like I said, in speaking what we hold as beautiful and compelling about our faith. Um, but I think to not couple that with the acknowledgement of her as a full person and all of the emotion that she was experiencing in that moment, I think I just missed an opportunity to really, to love her well. And so that has kind of, I thought about that over a little bit. I, I refer to in the book as maybe kind of a do-over. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't think that she'll ever find it. You know, I don't know where she is now, but um, just trying to explain more fully what I wished I had been able to do then. Yeah. And and that, I mean, let me just get on the subject of the act the, the idea of being a missionary, right? You sort of, you, you talk about how you sort of reject that identity, right? And, and throughout the book, there's a, a real resistance to conversion, like all the way through the book, um, you resist calls for you to convert to Islam. You make it clear to your friends in, in Djibouti that you're not trying to convert them to Christianity. And so I guess I would like to sort of have you kind of tell us a little bit about your ideas about interfaith um, life and dialogue. Mm -hmm. Well, I think part of it comes down to what is a missionary. Mm -hmm. Um, We are, we work for a secular NGO, which is funded by, you know, grants and philanthropic organizations and people, most of whom are Christian. And then when you move cross-culturally, the assumption often is you're either, you know, like a federal agent or you're a missionary. Um, And I think the word missionary itself is just very loaded with a lot of cultural, historical, colonial baggage, especially in Africa. I mean, I'm sure everywhere on the world, but my context in Africa, it's just a, it's not a positive term. And so in that sense, and and that limited perspective of what it looks like to live as a Christian in a foreign country, especially where you're a minority, um, I think when that word has all that attendant baggage, it's just not one that I find useful or really meaningful because people put their own meaning into it without then engaging on what we actually mean when we talk about living a life of faith in another context from where, you know, America where, at least in my upbringing, we were kind of the majority in my little circle. Um, so yeah, when it comes to conversion, you know, I do often have Muslim friends here asking me to become a Muslim um, because when you are passionate about something, when it's what you love, of course you want the people that you care about to also love it. You know, you find a great restaurant and you tell all your friends about it. You're passionate about a sports team and you tell people about that. Like when you love something, you want people to also love it. And so of course, you know, I love Jesus and I would love for my friends to love Jesus and know him the way that I do, but I I can't force it. That's not up to me to accomplish. And, um, that was a pressure that I actually did bring with me in the beginning. Really, this is up to me, you know, to to convince people, even in the United States and Minnesota or here, it's up to me to convince people that what I find beautiful is beautiful and compelling. And um, and I've just come to realize like that's on the one level, that's not up to me in the first place. Um, but then also being very honest with my Muslim friends, like, you know, I'm not interested in becoming a Muslim. I really love Jesus. I'm really thankful for the redemption that I have and the forgiveness there. And, and they can usually, you know, when we're very upfront about that, they understand that and accept that. And um, yeah, it's so also, you know, Jesus wasn't a Christian. I think this is 
kind of Christianity 101. He was a Jew. And throughout the New Testament, you know, in Acts, they weren't Christians. They were followers of the way. And eventually they became called Christians. But when Jesus invited people to follow him, they were following Jesus. They weren't becoming Christians. They were committing to a way of life that was devoted to this person that they that they loved. And then eventually you get to the cross and the resurrection, and then they realize the fullness of what Jesus came to accomplish, and they're following that way. So that's not a, you know, conversion as we think about it in changing your religious title. Um, I don't find that a very compelling idea to just change the title, hmm. but to change it in allegiance or to, you know, to really follow something that that's a more compelling vision to me. And yeah, I think we also just put a lot of cultural baggage on the idea of conversion. You know, become like me, which is what missionaries did a lot in the past. Become like me, wear clothing like me, practice your faith like me in these Western ways. And, um, you know, there's a lot of brokenness in the way that Western Christianity is practiced. I don't want to export that, you know, the consumerism or the you know, some of the hierarchical structures that are really dogmatic. I don't want to export that. So, so yeah, there's just a lot of redefining of terms that would need to happen for both, you know, missionary and, and conversion to before I would be willing to just full on adapt or adopt either one of those. Yeah. And that's something that really kind of, um, compels me about your book as well. I, it, maybe I just a little bit of personal information. I've always kind of felt as a person who is never sort of entirely part of whatever group I was in. So I've always kind of lived my life at the margins of wherever I was, um, physically or ideologically. And, and so, um, that way of life for me has always been kind of enriching and I, and I feel like more people can benefit by being less comfortable, <laughs> you know what I'm saying, with their identities. And, and um, so I am I'm not Catholic, but I work at a, a Sisters of Mercy College, right, for example. And we actually um, actually serve quite a few uh, Muslim students from the Middle East. And so um, that kind of weird, tension-filled uh, network of relationships has always been very productive for me to think more deeply about my own kind of belief systems. And that's really what this book is about, is the way in which this life outside of Christendom um, has helped you kind of reconceive and think more deeply about Christianity um, and about your personal faith. And, and so you use the five pillars as the kind of framing, uh, the five pillars of Islam as the framing device uh, for how you kind of discuss this. Um, and the book is just a beautiful collection of kind of like microcosmic little uh, anecdotes and stories about people and events that you've lived through. Um, and you've sort of categorized them under these headings. And I want to get into that in a little bit. But one really, I think, profound that stood out to me is an effective literary device. I'll call it. I'm an English professor. So that's, that's the word that's coming to mind. Uh, but the uh, is the use of Hagar as a um, uh, as a figure to the way I took it was this was a figure from your Christian upbringing that helped you find a root in your Islamic experience, right? And so, do you want to talk a little bit about Hagar and and her role in this uh, in this book for you? Hagar is fascinating as a character and Judaism, Christianity and Islam, we all share her and she plays a significant role in Islam, which I hadn't really known at all before. Um, I always thought of her. She was kind of just the mother of Ishmael, who was sort of the black sheep of our tree, our Christian tree or faith tree. Um, 
And so, you know, Ishmael was this terrible person. He was kicked out of the Abrahamic family, and then he became the ancestor of, of Muslims. And Hagar was just kind of his mom, <laughs> sort of how I thought of her. But as I started to see the ways that she is um, understood in Islam, I went back to the Bible, which is also really what this book is about, of how the things I saw here just sent me back to the Bible to dig deeper. And I, I saw this Hagar story as so compelling in terms of, you know, here's an outsider. Here's a woman who's a slave. She's Egyptian. She's used and manipulated. Um, she really has no power in her position. And she runs into the desert when she first is pregnant and she's abused by Sarah. She chooses death over whatever was happening to her in that home, you know, potential death in the desert. And she meets God. And she's this, the first person in the Bible to name God as the God who sees. And that alone just really is a powerful moment when you have such a fringe, marginal person who God is so directly pursuing. And then what God does, though, is he sends her back to this painful situation. And that also really can really challenged me. Like, what, what's happening here? Why is God sending her back? Why didn't he, why didn't he rescue her? But he sends her back with a promise about her son which had always been read in my understanding as a curse. Um, but if you read the, the verse about, the, about Ishmael and how he's going to be a wild donkey of a man and he's going to live to the east of all his brothers, depending on the translation, it could say east of all his brothers or in enmity with all his brothers. That's a very different reading of that story. And a wild donkey, in my context, I mean, there aren't wild donkeys, but I can picture one here. <laughs> there was one out in the desert, that would be a free, autonomous person. And Somalis in particular, they really, they're nomadic by nature, or not by nature, but by history. And so the majority in the past of Somalis were nomadic. They would cross borders. They, they love their camels and flocks. And they have a very fierce pride about being independent, beholden to no you know, political power or boundary or anything, just free to wander the land. And so in that context, a wild donkey of a man is a great promise to a slave woman. Yeah. And, and so just kind of re-looking at that story, what does that mean if that was a promise to Ishmael and if you know, Ishmael as the, the ancestor for Muslims? And uh, it just makes me think of them more as cousins in a way, as opposed to enemies. Mm. And then you have, when you follow down in, in Islam, you end up getting to the pillar of the Hajj, the pilgrimage to Mecca. And Hagar plays a significant part in the Hajj too. And so recognizing how much she's a part of that faith system, I think that her story can really provide a connection point for people of these Abrahamic faith systems that, um, that I really enjoyed just reading and imagining what her story was like. Yeah, um, absolutely. And and the contradictions that are sort of inherent in that story are just really productive ones. I, I just think they're, they're really kind of productive in, as a way to get you to think deeply um, and, and not settle for kind of simplistic Sunday school answers. And I think that's part of the journey of this book for you is, is emerging out of those simplistic Sunday school answers, right? And so mm -hmm. um, Hagar from Sunday school is uh, is, the, is the instrument for that for you. And I think that's, um, that's really wonderful. Um, and even the kind of... Um, so the double meanings that you're talking about there um, are, are, are that's throughout the book as well. Your friend um, 
uh, Amal, am I pronouncing her name right? Mm-hmm. Um, her son is named God, but um, in, in the language it means poisonous snake or something like that. Um, yes, yeah. yes. And so it's, uh, that's a, 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 I mean, if that's in a novel, that's just like a fascinating <laughs> thing. We'll spend an entire class period in analyzing, right? And so um, I think that that's a, that's a really kind of charming and, uh, and thought-provoking part of the book as well. So, mm-hmm. um, so let's get into sort of the structure of the book. As, um, as I mentioned before, it's kind of framed in these units, these sections um, that are collections of these stories uh, under the headings of each of the five pillars. And um, please forgive me and correct me if I, when I uh, mispronounce some of them, but Shahada is the first one, um, Mm -hmm. which is the idea, the notion that there is no God, but God. Uh, Can you talk a little bit about how that pillar of Islam, that kind of fundamental pillar of Islam is um, an opportunity for you then to kind of, um, become closer to Jesus, as your book's title says. Mm-hmm. So this is the creed. Kind of, You could think of it like a creed for Muslims. And the way you become a Muslim is by reciting it. So there's no God but God, and Muhammad is the prophet of God. And I didn't really think I had a creed. I mean, I know the Nicene Creed and the Apostles' Creed. But this idea that there's no God but God, I can I can stop there. There is That's true. There's one God. That's, I follow one God. And uh, wrestling through then what is God, what is my creed, what is my conviction? Um, yeah, I just found that really interesting to think about what does it require to become a Christian in terms of belief of God, um, identity. And then when Muslims were asking me to say this, I started to realize this, this feels kind of competitive. Mm. You know, you want me to become like you and I want you to become like me. And we're going to sometimes people raise up a person who's become a Muslim or a person who's become a Christian as like a, see, we're, we're winning this competitive thing. Um, and so thinking about urging someone to say a certain phrase or being urged to say a certain phrase helped me wrestle with what is the, what is my creed? You know, there's, there's no God but God and Jesus is the incarnate word of God. I, I, I haven't said it like that in terms of a Shahada, but um, if someone were to ask me, that would be my response. You know, yes, there's no God but God, and, and Jesus is the Son of God, the Word of God. And so then, you know, they want me to to say it so they can sort of win that battle. Um, but when I don't, sometimes they'll say, well, you're kind of close. You're kind of close. But And I'm like, you know what, I'm not, we're kind of close, but I, we have this different point. So. At the end of the book, when you you narrate saying that to your friends, they seem rather amused by it, um, and so, um, which which was nice to hear. Yeah, um, yeah, no, that's um, that's a really good point, and, and it's an occasion again for us to think about the way in which we privilege. And uh, in, in I grew up a kind of a Nazarene. I grew up sort of low church, like Wesleyan, I guess, tradition, and. Um, the um the way we always sort of privileged these conversion stories um like and, and it, is it more about like my football team beat your football team in the playoffs this year right and and, and how is it uh like what is the role of that in our own kind of experience and so yeah that those stories are all re- really interesting and it's sort of about the um um, that's that's more organized around your Somaliland experience, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and then when you move to Djibouti, um, it becomes a mu- the, my impression of it from the book is that it's a much more kind of theologically neutral um, country um, and much 
I wouldn't say secular, but um, it's definitely more. Um, French fried. You say French fried. Yes, <laughs> that's French fried. That's a great way to put it. Yes. Um, and so uh, the second pillar is prayer, and this one stood out to me a lot as well because um, you, you do a lot of reflection about the formalized nature of um, Islamic prayer versus how we're taught to pray. And, and honestly, this has always been a struggle for me too. And, and you tell a story at some point in here about, I think it was when you met your husband, he would fall asleep during 6 a.m. Like I, I remember going to a, a New Year's Eve party at a friend, a church friend's house. And, and at midnight, they had us all get together and and just this, this circular prayer for hours, right? And I was snoring, and it was just, I felt like such a terrible person, right? Um, and, and I could hear everybody laughing at me. And, um, and so, um, but tell, talk, this is about you, not about my, my inability to stay awake on New Year's Eve. Um, talk about the idea of um, salat, uh, which is prayer. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so absolutely, it's been a struggle for me. And that was one of the things that attracted me to my husband at the time was that he just was so free about that it was <laughs> hard to stay awake. And he didn't seem so plagued by guilt like I was. And so, um, you know, I, I, I struggled with prayer in terms of keeping a prayer list or a prayer journal or a prayer calendar, prayer index cards, all these different methods that I tried to make my prayer life work and feel powerful and effective. And it always felt like a struggle. And uh, one thing I never really did was use my body in prayer. And so when I came here and I watched, I really, I really love to watch Muslims pray. I think it's, it's just a powerful moment to watch people sincerely engage in a practice of faith. And so I would see, you know, I'd visit my friends and the women would pray in their home most of the time. And the men would go to the mosque most of the time. And so we would be just having lunch or a play date. And they would say, I have to go pray. Or my language tutor would step out to pray. And I would just watch their body and and I was curious about it. I didn't understand the words. They're reciting prayers in Arabic. And so even actually a lot of Somalis don't know the full meaning of all the prayers if they don't speak Arabic. But, you know, it's this ritual and they're doing it at the same time as people all around the world. They're doing the same motions. Um, and so somehow it, it just kind of exposed me to the idea of a global m- movement of prayer. And I wondered, you know, what does this look like for Christians? And and can we pray in the same way? And even thinking back through the Old Testament, you have Daniel who would bow in prayer. Um, I just I, Actually, one time I was at, I honestly can't remember if this story is in the book or not, but I was at the Heathrow Airport, and we were kind of in the bowels of the airport where they put people who are going to countries like Somalia or Djibouti on the airplane. And there was a group of Orthodox Jews who had lined up, and they started to pray. And Next to them was a group of Muslims who had lined up to pray. And it was very similar, the motions that they were doing with their bodies. And I was just struck by that unity that can happen um, across even a faith system, but across the world. And so I, a few times I would ask friends if I could pray with them. And I would explain very clearly, I'm not a Muslim. I'm not becoming a Muslim. I don't know the words. I'm going to pray in English. But can I just kind of move my body next to yours. And a few would say yes, and a few would say, well, I'm not sure if that's okay. And so then I wouldn't. But, um, you know, the few times that I have done it, and again, just, you know, praying in English, and but moving my body, it just really helps me engage prayer in a different way that I hadn't considered before. And then this idea of a rote prayer, like we have the Lord's Prayer. Jesus gave us that. 
And, uh, and I was always taught it as a kid as like a, you can kind of unpack each thing to sort of mean something, you know, give us this day our daily bread. Well, what do you need? And so pray through it with what you need and kind of use it as a tool to guide your own sort of freestyle prayer life, which is valuable. You know, that's a, a good tool, but I was never really given it as a just here by itself, say this. Um, and so what I've started to appreciate is that liturgical recitation of the Lord's Prayer and recognizing. So in my church here, we do say it at the end of each service. And our church is full of different people from all over the world. So multiple different languages will be kind of rising up when we come to the Lord's Prayer together. And it, I just have really appreciated that globalness of a shared liturgical memorized prayer that I hadn't fully appreciated before. So that's one way that that the Salat the Islamic Salat forced me to look back at my own tradition. What have I missed and what can I really love and embrace here? And then it's five times a day also. The call to prayer comes out five times a day and there are mosques on every corner. And so it's a constant reminder. It's very easy to ignore it. And so I, you know, to be honest, most of the time I'm not moved to prayer when I hear it because I'm not even paying attention to it anymore. But when I do kind of tune my mind and my soul to be hearing it, it's five times a day reminder that prayer is better than sleep. That's what they say in the morning time. Well, prayer is more important than what you're doing right now. Put it aside, give five, 10 minutes to prayer. And that's a powerful reminder. So I've been thankful for that constancy. Yeah. In general, and I don't want I don't mean to uh, uh, make this an insult against uh, my friends and listeners who still identify as evangelical, but um, I, I do feel like my experience growing up in that world was a resistance to kind of formalized liturgical thing uh, things. Mm -hmm. And so even working at a Catholic college, I've come to really appreciate um, the, the mass, right. And, and the, the kind of formal um, worship practices there um, prayer practices. And so I, I do feel like that is op when you reject those kinds of um, you can accuse them of being rote uh, mechanical practices, what we have done in practice is just replace them with consumerist versions of the same thing <laughs> the claim I would make. Uh, and so I think that's been a kind of um, a real kind of cultural weakness of Christian of, of evangelical, particularly um, forms of Christianity um, in the kind of uh, systematic rejection, rejection and just sort of um, on principle rejection mm -hmm. of kind of formal prayer practices and other um, kinds of worship. Um, we don't even notice the way, we have other kinds of liturgies that um, are really kind of controlling us from basically market forces. And, and, mm -hmm. and, and I, um, um, I've come to um, realize that. <laughs> and, and, and I think that this is a really great reminder of that. Um, the third one is um, mm -hmm. zakat. Uh, am I saying mm -hmm. that one right? Um, which is yep. um, you have the subtitle of almsgiving, but it's sort of our idea of charity, right? And so, mm -hmm. um, and this was actually very um, meaningful to me as well. Do you want to talk a little bit about that and the role that it plays in Islam? And it, it goes along with some of these more kind of formal, uh, like a Christian rejection of formal um, legalism, perhaps, but you find a place where that's sort of valuable on some level. So do you want to talk mm -hmm. a little bit about this? Yeah. So a traditional Islamic tithe or zakat would be 2.5%, um, which I, at first, when I heard that, I thought, oh, 2.5%, that's, you know, again, the competitiveness, right? That's like that's nothing. <laughs> we give we 10% <laughs> or more, you know, if you're, you know, more. So it kind of was another opportunity to compare and judge, right? But 
what I re- I did some research on that. And what I found in my research is that actually on average, the, the American church community gives 2.5%. And I thought, Oh my, that is interesting, right? <laughs> that is interesting. And so you have this sort of aspirational Christianity where Jesus says, be perfect as your father is perfect. Give 10%. Or, Jesus didn't say that, but traditionally, you know, from the old Testament, we take that. Um, and then you have Islam, which is, kind of grounded in reality in terms of, yeah, we're probably going to give 2.5%. <laughs> and so, you know, what I love is I, I love the aspirational part. I love the call to be perfect, even though I can never accomplish it because Jesus accomplished it for us. But I found that instead of making that, again, the point of competitiveness, here's a point where we can learn from each other and and how can I be inspired to be more generous up to the 10% or beyond. And um and then some of my some of my Muslim friends here, they're very open about their giving. You know, we have the idea of don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. And they would be like, no, 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 give me. You know, if I was going to give something to a beggar, they my friends would say, give it to me so I can give it to them. So more of us get more points and we get more, you know, it's it was visible, very visible, the sense of giving. And uh, because they wanted this reward. And I thought, well, that again, I I kind of judged that at first of we're supposed to be giving in secret and we shouldn't be proud about it and we shouldn't be demanding a reward because of our giving. And yet at the same time, I again was forced to look back at my own heart and think about, you know, I really expect God to reward me in some ways. Look at what I've done. I've come to Africa. I've left my family. I've moved my you know twins and then a third child to Djibouti and it's sometimes really hard. And so I should get something for that, you know? And so I was really challenged to examine my own sort of false gospel of a promised reward, which, you know, again, there is reward, like Jesus talked about rewards in heaven, you know, seek first the kingdom of God, all these things will be given to you. So, but it's not like a, you know, I wasn't so tangible about it the way that my friends were. And so again, it's just convicting to look at my own heart in terms of charity and almsgiving and, um, and looking at people, engaging people as we give. Yeah. And there's, a lot of meditation in that section about the real purpose behind that um, uh, of alms. It's it's a way of worshiping God, right? And mm-hmm. and you talk. A, a, there's a story somewhere in here about your friend. I think opened a little restaurant um, and her sort of acts of charity towards people who can't pay and that sort of thing, mm-hmm. knowing that she can't pay her loan back either <laughs> that she took out <laughs> for the restaurant. So there's this sort of like burden bearing, I guess, that goes along mm-hmm. in a communal fashion um, that's rather beautiful. And at one point, mm-hmm. you you actually talk, um, you, you phrase it in a way that stood out to me. You talk about how the the uh, Jesus's words about you will always have the poor with you mm-hmm. are sometimes taken as an excuse to not have to do anything. Like, mm-hmm. uh, th- what's the point in trying? They're always going to be there. It's more about your relationship with Jesus, right? Um, mm-hmm. Than social justice or quote unquote, <laughs> let's not get into that. But, um, but, uh, but, and you say in here, my Somali friends, had they read Jesus' statement, may have seen it as a promise. There will always be an opportunity to give. There would never be the risk um, uh, of living with unabashed greed, right? And so yes. um, that's a turning, that's another kind of reinterpretation of scripture that turns and makes it much more meaningful by turning it on its head. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, so they, the idea here is that beggars are giving people an opportunity for worship, which on the one hand helps to, uh, it diminishes motivation to eliminate poverty. Because if they're, as long as they're beggars, 
that people with money have an opportunity to worship and the beggar also gets a reward for giving the person the opportunity to obey God. And so there is a downside to it also, but on the other hand, to recognize that this act of giving is worship, even if it's just two coins, right? Like the poor widow or the, the woman in the New Testament or the, the woman I was spending time with in her tea shop, um, just a little bit. And they want to engage in that. Even people who are, who we would see from our Western perspective as poor, economically poor, but rich in relationship. And they want to participate in charity also. And so that, that was really um, challenging to me to really consider the smallest gift as legitimate worship. And, um, and how do I think about my own giving? And am I judging it based on amount or based on, you know, visibility or whatever it might be? Yeah. Yeah. That it's, uh, it's, it's like I said, as with the rest of the book, that's yet another occasion, um, for the opportunity to kind of, um, have a more ethical reflection on our own kind of faith, no matter where you're from. Um, and the next one is fitting as we record this, we're sort of right in the midst of Lent, um, and Ramadan is approaching, um, actually. And so you do talk about Ramadan, um, and the angle that you, that I get out of the, this collection of, of stories is, um, the idea of fasting becomes like uh, an act of community building. Uh, and, and that was like a really interesting and new um, perspective to bring on to that. And so do you want to talk a little bit about how Ramadan changed your ideas about fasting? Mm-hmm. So again, you know, this was another spiritual practice that was always seen or understood by me before as private because of the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus says, you know, don't let your fasting be done to be seen by people. And so whenever I heard about a group that was corporately fasting, I was like, well, that nullifies the fast. It's canceled if you tell people about it. <laughs> um, and yet that, that, that's not the fullness of Scripture. You know, if we look at other parts of Scripture, the whole community, Esther called the community to pray and fast for her. It wasn't secret at that time. Nineveh was repenting and fasting. So I didn't, again, I just didn't have the mindset or the eyes to see all these things. And then here people are very vocal about challenging each other to keep the fast. It's hard. The fast, it's coming up Ramadan in the middle of April, and it's hot in Djibouti, and they not only forego food, but they also forego water from morning until sunrise until sunset. And so it's really hard, and they need that corporate accountability and encouragement and challenge, like, hey, we're in this together. We're going to do this. And it also provides a real bond. It's not just people here. It's people across the world that are doing this at the same time. And so... That idea of, again, the, the corporate community accountability and encouragement and joy in it even was really profound and challenging to me to consider, yes, there's value, again, in the, the, the private, quiet fast, but also in a corporate fast, especially when you're really longing for God to do something, like, again, with Esther or in some of these other stories, you know, bring the community together and, like, through Lent and use this as an opportunity to say, God, we want you to do this thing so bad. We long for you. We're hungry for you to move and to work. And so let's join as a body. Let's not isolate ourselves. You know, again, my upbringing and and still some things just in my mind as an American is very individualistic, Mm. Um, both, you know, in prayer and in giving and all these things. And yet I think we have such a rich opportunity to be communal in our faith that I've missed, that I had missed until really seeing that embodied by this community. So again, it turned me back. What what does the Christian faith have? We have Lent. We have this, we do have a global um, opportunity to participate in fasting together. Yeah. And um, that idea of 
rejecting sort of individualistic approaches to worship practices um, comes up again in the final pillar about Hajj, right? And you sort of talk about this idea of um, becoming, a, I think, a drop in the water or a drop in the ocean or something like that and, and taking part of this you know, two million people coming together um, to uh, make pilgrimage. And and so um, that was a very interesting um, pil- uh, pillar. It, it doesn't necessarily have a, as natural a connect a, a corollary in Christianity. We don't, that I, to my, 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 my thinking, we don't have something that naturally kind of corresponds to it, right? And so one of the things that stood out to me is this is where you're sort of reflecting on religious violence um, often. Uh, and, and you've kind of put those reflections in this section about Hajj. Um, do you want to talk about Hajj and, and how that pillar sort of affects your thinking about faith? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I had the same reaction to it of this, I don't know what to do with this. <laughs> um, and even the Hajj feels like the most mysterious of the practices because we do have corollaries with the other ones. But you can't go on Hajj unless you're a Muslim. You have to somehow prove that you are a Muslim before you can go on it. And so there's things, it just feels a little bit secretive, which makes it very intriguing. You know, I'm, I'm curious about it because we're outside of it. Um, and so I, I really enjoyed reading some of the memoirs or reportage that, about the Hajj just to kind of see what happened on it. Um, and then, yeah, the idea of being a drop in the bucket, you know, imagine two million people. It's the largest religious festival every year on the planet. And so, and everyone is wearing the same uh, white cloth, men and women, and you're kind of stripped of all identifying things, of course, besides your language and, and different things. But there's a sense of, from what I hear, people talk about a real unity that they experience and how kind of meaningless they are as an individual. Um, and then the, the way I tied that with religious violence was through the Crusades. I, I felt like I couldn't write a book like this without addressing mm. that topic. It just felt disingenuous. Um, but it was really, I really wrestled with that section, I think, I think almost the most. Um, because there is such a violent, complicated history and present, you know, between these two religions. And we had our own experiences with violence and threats. And so how do I couple that with these relationships, you know, that I have. We've experienced a couple of death threats. What does that mean when I feel mostly welcomed, you know, 99.9% of the time? What does it mean if someone draws their finger across their throat in a gesture at me and then offers me tea? <laughs> how do I how do I think about that, you know? Um, and so the way I tie that together through the Hajj was because of the Crusades, because those were essentially pilgrims that were sent from Europe to go and rescue the Christians or to, you know, get back Jerusalem. And one of the, I'm not going to remember the exact name, but one of the popes uh, essentially called them pilgrims, Mm. the crusaders. And so we have that negative history, but then there, you know, now there are a few pilgrimages that people go on. The Camino way is one, but it's still not something that's mass and global and every year at the same time, the way it is in Islam. And so I just um, took that also as an opportunity to reflect on my own, as they say, journey, pilgrimage, um, and and what this has looked like. Yeah. And yeah. And that the, um, 
that connects nicely, I guess, the idea of you, you connect it to the violence that's inherent in the scripture itself. I mean, there were violent stories where heroes and God himself do terrible things <laughs> to people, right? And so um, I, I, there's sort of a, an implied call to be less judgmental of other faiths and, and the violence we perceive because they are the other. We don't recognize our own, right? And so mm-hmm. um, one of the... Um, things that recurs throughout the book. And I, I can think of a few examples when you chose to give birth in uh, Djibouti, um, mm-hmm. despite the, the danger in, in doing so, you were criticized um, by people from back home, right? And you have this sort of, um, these moments where people back home don't understand necessarily. And so, um, and I think that might be, as we wrap up, uh, an opportunity to kind of explain to the listener um, (laughs) who might be sort of more used to more traditional sort of conversion narratives, right? Where it's us against them. um, Why um, you live the way you do and why you write this book. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I've, I have been interested and I guess we will see how the American side of my life receives this story. Um, I, I think that positive stories about Muslims, you know, stories that are telling a different version even of this region that aren't just about pirates, aren't just about violence or famine, but are about family and friends and hard work. I don't think those are common and I don't think that they're very popular. Mm. (laughs) And so um, I I do think that people will challenge me on some things, you know, just, but this has been my life for 18 (laughs) years, you know? And so, of course, we go back to the United States, but this is my home and my my children's school teachers and our doctor, you know, the woman who caught my baby when she was born was a Somali Muslim. And so the the reason that I live this way is because I feel like it's, it's uh, authentic. It's who I feel like God has made me to be. I'm a storyteller. I love writing. I love telling stories. I love asking people their stories. And so that requires listening really well. Um, it requires being able to ask good questions, curiosity, so coupled with like that storytelling bent of my heart, coupled with my own desire to live in authentic relationships means it's required a kind of transparency about my own faith um, and about my own desires for connection with people here. And then to, to couple those together to be able to share that story. That's why I, I wrote this book. I want, um, I want people to take the book as a conversation tool. Mm-hmm. I hope that it will raise some questions for people and potentially encourage them to find a relationship with someone who doesn't share their same faith. You know, right now, obviously in the United States, we're facing religious violence again, or I don't know if it's religious violence, but violence that has religious undertones. Um, We have so much division in terms of politics and basically everything that you can have an opinion about. Um, And so I wanted to show a story of you can have authentic connection and relationship with people who don't agree with you. And it doesn't require agreeing. Mm. It just requires being honest about, this is what I think. I hear what you're saying. I don't agree with you. Can we still partner together? Can we still make something beautiful? And, um, you know, like when my baby was born, can we can we do this together? <laughs> or even the book itself, you know, the foreword is written by a Somali Muslim. And so in the actual product of the book, I feel like I have this um, example of what we're trying to accomplish what I'm trying to accomplish. Um, and it, yeah, just, we don't have to see eye to eye. We don't have to agree. You don't have to 
be Republican and Democrat agreeing on everything, but you can still work together. We have to. I, I don't think this division is helpful. <laughs> and so that's one of my hopes for the book is that we'll encourage people to, um, to cross barriers with love and compassion and openness. There's a real admirable intellectual humility uh, in this book that I I, I, uh, I respect. And and uh, and it's one of the things that I really loved reading about it. Um, I really recommend it, uh, like I said at the beginning. Um, before I let you go, is there any sort of last thing you want to um, share with us um, before, uh, before uh, so you have the last word here? Um, you know, I think one thing that will really be helpful as people try to cross these boundaries is to put yourself in the position of being the stranger. That's something that I think a lot of Americans can be challenged in. I've lived that way for a long time and it is transformative. So we think about the Good Samaritan and we always think that we're the Good Samaritan, right? We're the one going to love our neighbor, which is a good thing to do to love your neighbor. But what if we think about ourselves as the wounded person on the road being loved by our neighbor? So go. I encourage people to go put yourself in the position where you are the outsider. You are at a restaurant where you can't read the menu. You're at a temple or a mosque or a church that's not yours. And so you don't know what's going on and see how people welcome you and experience being neighbored by somebody else. And I think that will really help people to, to start to build those bridges over barriers. Yeah. And look at the scripture from different angles. The, another example is the woman of the well, right? You, you, you uh, kind of reinterpret that in the book as well. And so, yeah, that's great advice. It's, it's a wonderful book. Um, this is called Pillars, uh, How Muslim Friends Led Me Closer to Jesus by Rachel Pye Jones. And it's by Plow Publishing. That's P-L-O-U-G-H. Uh, and that's going to be coming out on April 6th. You can find it at the Plow website and Amazon and all the places I assume you can buy books. Um, I highly recommend it. It was a, a really um, inspiring and thought-provoking read. And Rachel Jones, thank you so much for joining me and, and congratulations on the book. And I, I wish you all the best. Thanks so much. Great questions, Danny. I enjoyed it. I enjoyed talking to you too. And for those of you listening, if you have any questions or feedback, uh, please don't hesitate to get in touch with me. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at, at Danny P. Anderson. And uh, you can find the show elsewhere via email. And we have a website that you can find all that information. For Rachel Pye Jones, my name is Danny Anderson. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Sectarian Review Podcast. <laughs>